0: This week on Hacker and the Fed, Microsoft releases their 2023 Digital Defense Report. Are paying ransoms illegal in the United States? The NSA and CISA red and blue teams share top 10 cybersecurity misconfigurations. A 158-year-old company shuts down because of a ransomware attack. And we answer listener questions about FIDO2 security keys and hacktivist rules.
1: Hector Monseager was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. FBI
0: special agent Chris Tarbell,
1: hackers and FBI
0: informants, participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks that caused up to $50 million in damages, a life in the shadows, cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. Come check us out at Naxo.com. I'm joined as always by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector MonsterCore. Hector was a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, Researcher and cybersecurity expert Hector, how are things going for you this week?
1: Going very well, my friend. Very busy. I'm not going to front, but super well. Uh, family's good. I'm I'm happy.
0: How about yourself? I'm, I'm good too. It's uh it's it's cybersecurity awareness month, so I apparently you know that's why it's going to be so busy. So uh, people are out there getting their cybers all
1: secured. <laughs> oh yeah. Big shout out to all the cybers out there. But hey, by the way, while you was reading that intro, which you do every week, there's two things that came to mind. Okay. One, wow. You know, I'm always amazed at at our story, of how we linked up. Really. I know we've talked about it, but it always is mind blowing to me that, you know, back in 2011, like I would have this life changing experience. And of course you did in your ways as well. Um, So hearing the intro always is like, wow, it's a big, it's a big uh, refresher for me. And the second thing is, is that I know we have like a competition we started last week and, uh, you know, I would love for you to kind of share with that with the audience and hopefully we get some, some traction on that.
0: Yeah, for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we decided to have a contest here at Hacker in the Fed, um, and we had a listener write in and kind of started off with uh, th- his take on a, on a new write-up for the intro. What we're looking for is people to write a new intro for Hacker in the Fed, kind of, you know, use the backbone, um, you know, kind of our story being told out there is is really what we're looking for, and put it on LinkedIn, and tag Hector, tag myself, tag Hacker in the Fed, and also tag Naxo. Um, and uh, you'll be in it for whatever hacker in the Fed merchandise you'd like to get. So that's what we're looking to do kind of you know look behind the curtain. we're honest with the audience as much as we can. Uh, we're looking to get the story out there. Putting a link that kind of tells our story out there is good. Coming up with a new intro that might be a little more catchier than the same one I do every week that might be good. Um, and you know get some merchandise out there to, to for your hard work. I think that's good too. I think that's a great idea. And by
1: the way, the hoodie is very nice. So if one of you guys put together a really cool intro and we pick it for the next episode, you're gonna get a banging hoodie. That's what you want. There's also really cool shirts as well.
0: Uh, you got some in- some uh, interesting stuff at the end of the show. Maybe some new merch being Woo! added to the story this week. So, Love it. Yeah. So that'll be. Hang on to your uh, your your seats for that one.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: I will. So we have a lot of stories uh, uh, to get into this week and a little bit of time to get in them, Hector. So should we jump in or do we want a little bit more banter?
1: You know what? Let's jump in because there's some really good content here, guys.
0: So the first story we're going to cover this week, Hector, is Microsoft releases its yearly digital defense report. A lot of good key stuff coming out of this report, guys. Um, you know, Go on to Microsoft. We'll, we'll include the link. A lot of the big report you can download or just the executive summary. Uh, lots of good stuff, and it kind of shows what the most common attacks leveraged by adversaries are, uh, who they're attacking, why they're attacking, and some good cybersecurity statistics. So uh, way to go, Microsoft, uh, releasing the information for Cybersecurity Awareness Month.
1: Well, here's my take on it, right? As folks, especially folks in the industry, know that every year companies put together like these really cool marketing campaigns, and part of the marketing campaign is to release some sort of yearly report. Um, Verizon does it. Verizon is very known, famous for its the yearly um, data breach uh, um, and IR reports. Fantastic stuff. The folks at like PECUS put together a really cool report on you know half a million malware streams that they they've reverse engineered over the last you know. 12, 12 to twenty-four months, but Microsoft also came out with a very, very badass report. I enjoyed it because yes, a lot of these things we've, we we kind of go back and forth on for almost every week. Um, and every week we touch on a specific topic, like brute forcing attacks or adversary in the middle, whatever, right, whatever it is. But it was very nice for Microsoft to put together all of this, all of these details together in one report. And statistics are always good to look at, right? Um, and for the mathematicians out there, I'm sure you, you may even uh, agree or disagree with some of these stats. But the one thing I'll tell you is that it's always good to have some sort of uh, content that you could provide, um, you know, during an engagement when you're speaking with a client or speaking with your board stakeholders, and say, "Look, according to Microsoft, 80 to 90 of all successful uh, percent of all successful ransomware compromises are re- originate through unmanaged devices." For example, that's very powerful.
0: Yeah, even for those out there getting trying to get into the industry and do your first interview in cybersecurity interviews, having you know this this information you know at your fingertips and being able to understand kind of the trends, um, you know, go back and look look at past years and, and see where the trends are going and what's changing, uh, what are the new things coming up you know, having that information at hand. So let's dig into a little bit. So um, the first key point is nation state actors are expanding their global target set with Ukraine being the top European target per volume of observed activity. I don't think that's a surprise to you.
1: No, definitely not. And with the, the recent situation out in um, the Middle East with uh, Israel, um, and a big shout out to my all my Israeli friends. I'm sorry going through that. Um, the reality is, is that we're probably going to see a lot of those activities start to shift towards the Middle East as well.
0: Yeah. The next one is identity attacks and ransomware counters and attacks targeting open source software. The top threats identified by Mar- by Microsoft Defender experts this year. So, Hector, that's a little bit of sad news. Um, I didn't see in there that the one of the top threats is the insider threat.
1: You know, Chris. You know, you know what they say. Hashtag Chris is always right. I, I get that. Okay. You know, the insider threat right is a bit of a nuance, but uh, but yes, I, I do agree that some of these identity attacks, these these other encounters, and then of course, open source is becoming a, a, a huge hotbed for bad actor activity, and that's a shame because I love open source, but it, it, it you know it's being leveraged by attackers now, and, and we're seeing it a lot more.
0: So the next one is 80 to 90% of all successful ransomware compromises originate through unmanaged devices. Now I would have guessed that they originated through spear phishing or some sort of phishing campaign. Uh, are you surprised that 80 to 90% is, is that high?
1: Well, it depends, right? So from our perspective as practitioners and people in the industry, you're you're engaging with clients who are victims of social engineering attacks for example. And then when I'm brought in to do a red team engagement or a social engineering campaign, um, you know, those are very successful for me. Okay. Now, with that being said, Microsoft is looking at a completely different data set. They're looking at millions or maybe even billions of events per year. And what they're probably seeing is that a lot of successful payloads that are executed on an endpoint um, are probably not managed. I think that's where they get these numbers from. So, from our perspective, social engineering is a is, is a solid initial entry method or vector. But once that vector, once the attacker gets past that vector, you know, these unmanaged devices, devices that are not being managed, that are, do not have EDRs, that do not have end, uh, technical controls in place, uh, they're not updated properly. That's what Microsoft is probably seeing. I think that's where the numbers
0: Let are. Let me ask you, the skeptic in me kind of worries that, you know, does... does the source of the information, you I mean like you said Microsoft, they're not building themselves a lot of these devices. Uh could it help that could that skew some of their numbers?
1: Could be, right? I mean, after all, you know, it is it is it is October, it is Cybersecurity Awareness <laughs> Month, and uh yeah, I mean it is part of their marketing campaign, right? So this report might be skewed, it might have some things that that you know um are legitimate. There are other things that are probably just like whatever, right? Um but you know it's it's hard to call that. I would hope that you know that people have some good takeaways from the support rather than uh, you know getting caught up in the marketing trend.
0: So adversaries primarily leverage unsecured remote desktop protocol, RDP, or vir- virtual private networks, VPNs, to gain access to networks. And to safeguard against these attacks, it's crucial to implement zero trust and least privileged principles. You've been spewing this for a long time, telling the audience, you know, zero trust, we need to move to zero trust. But zero trust isn't necessarily just a Microsoft thing. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of more of a, a fundamental approach or a, a way of looking at cybersecurity. Why do you think Microsoft here is is pushing zero trust so much?
1: Because they're probably coming out with some zero trust implementations of, of their own, right? Um, and you know, and that's fine. The more, the merrier. We've seen zero trust go from a concept to some, you know, some some one-off products here and there. We've seen different ways it's being implemented. Remember, when you look at something like zero trust or lease uh, trust, you, you have to really understand the core concepts that are or the core points. That you know you're really raising when you bring up that uh, that that terminology, that phrase, that concept, which is micro segmentation. Okay, micro segmentation makes up for a lot of it. Which means you want to be able to segment users from resources that they do not need access to. The concept of having just a flat internal network, we need to move away from that, right? Even if you're using VLANs at the at the at the at the very least. You want to be able to kind of create little islands. If an attacker gets into a development portion of the network, they're stuck in that development portion of the network. They don't get access to the production um, segment. They don't get access to finance, for example. Um, So, yes, remember, you know, micro-segmentation makes up for a lot of zero trust, but it goes beyond that. We're talking about governance. We're talking about um, how to deal with authentication and authorization. Um, You know, so, yes, we're going to see a lot of companies mention zero trust and least trust, in their marketing campaigns. But remember, when you hear zero trust or least trust, what you should be thinking is, OK, they're talking about micro segmentation, resource limitation, access controls, privilege separation, and all of the different other vectors that um, can be utilized by an organization.
0: Yeah, we talked about it last week and if we didn't listen to last week's episode, you know, we kind of put zero trust in, you know, entering a secure building, you show them your pass, you, you, you know, has a picture of you on it, and you type in a little pin number, um, you get into a, you know, that building, but then you, you want to go into a hallway in that building, you have to show your pass and type a pin in again, to authenticate who you are, and that you should be in that part of the building. You know, that's just taking that that physical security aspect and, and applying it to the cybersecurity.
1: Absolutely. And you know what? And and but there's a point that you, you just kind of read from this report, from this report rather, um, that attackers or adversaries are leveraging unsecured RDP or remote desktop protocol system uh, services and virtual private networks. I read this morning that there was actually a campaign against like Citrix, VPN Gateway, um, and attackers are using like zero-day vulnerabilities to get access to these machines, backdoor them, and then steal credentials. Now, Remember how we talk about there's always like that initial access person. There's always going to be that one person that breaks into your organization. They'll steal credentials. They'll make some minimal move around your network just to kind of do like a reconnaissance. And then they'll sit on it for X amount of time and sell it to a ransomware group. So we're seeing a lot of that activity right now. A lot of initial access campaigns against specific VPN products. And uh, they're effective. They're getting in there.
0: So the report goes on to talk about like we talk, the most common uh, attacks leveraged against adversaries and it includes the RDPs and the VPNs, but the other ones are brute force attacks, sophisticated password spray attacks, adversary in the middle attacks, ransomware, uh, and attacks uh, against open source software. Uh, no, again, no insider threat attacks there on, on the most common. Um, but are you surprised by any of these? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, we've, if, if anyone listens to our episodes every week,
1: they would know that we've covered pretty much every um, common attack, you know, represented here by Microsoft in their report. Um, so no, I'm not surprised by any of these. I think the the one that I, like that hits me hard is the open source one, obviously, because I you know it, it sucks that you know you have developers releasing really cool software. And then you have bad actors kind of leveraging that. But aside from that, these are all pretty um, pretty known, well known.
0: Yeah, I, I the, seeing this the uh, password spray attacks or you know the, the credential stuffing. I guess it would be. I just saw there was another one this morning. Twenty uh, three and Me, the DNA. Uh, that there are about a million records posted on the dark web, and all of them they've they've led all of them down to you know just a uh, using username and passwords that were compromised on another site. That's why we don't reuse passwords, everybody. If we we have to use passwords and we can't switch to FIDO keys, uh, you know, let's uh, let's let's start making sure the passwords are different in each site. Moving on, according to the Microsoft Digital Defense Report of 2023, the most common targets for nation-state actors were think tanks, uh, NGOs, universities, government agencies, the defense industry, and critical infrastructure. Again, no surprise here. No, no
1: surprise here. Let's let's look at the first one: the think tanks, the NGOs, universities. Right, uh, these are organizations that are a wealth of knowledge for any attacker or adversary that breaks into their environments. You know, we have think tanks. There's a potential for upcoming research, technology, capabilities, or information intelligence on a, a company or or a country in general um, that can be leveraged by the bad actors. Of course, the NGOs kind of suck, right? These are non government organizations uh, the fact that these and some of these are not well funded you know some of these are volunteer only so it sucks that they're being targeted and you know what's the crazy part from some of the biggest um uh zero days we saw when it comes to iphones many of the targets were either journalists or ngos have you noticed that rather than like for foreign government it's pretty bizarre
0: yeah i mean again these targets are you know what you expect you know they're they're Sums can be soft targets, but the value of the information is there. You know, looking at it, it looks it looks like nation state uh, attackers. You know, going after these NGOs. um, About twenty four percent of all their attacks were focused on that, uh, but including forty three percent use spear phishing. So you know, it really just comes down to user education on a lot of this stuff. I mean, uh, you know, people clicking on links. uh, You know, people downloading. You know, software from. Things they, they think is the site, but it's, you know, like, a, you know, a Google malvertisement or something along those lines. I, I wish it was, you know, we could blame it all on devices, blame it all on people not securing our data. You know, we bitch about that every week. But, you know, 43% from spear phishing campaigns. Guys, don't click on links. There's no reason to click on these links. If someone's trying to send you something, uh, you know, shoot them a, a message in some other medium. Send them a text. Call them, um, you know. Don't click on these links. It's, it's driving me nuts. Absolutely. And, you know, you as someone that works in an organization,
1: if you were, even if you were hired yesterday, okay, you were hired this week and you want to make a good impression, you get an email from your CEO saying, hey, I'm traveling. I'm in a rush. Click on this link and update your personal information. Uh, call the CEO. Call the secretary. Call somebody. Verify. Validate. If you don't, what are you going to do? You're going to open up a gateway for these attackers and ultimately lose your job. There are consequences to to these oversights, right? And eventually, what we're going to see a lot more, Chris, is you know, it's a, is a special word here in the United States that people like to avoid. And Chris, you know, I hopefully, hopefully, I don't cause any problems here. But the word is <clears throat> accountability, right? That's a word that, for whatever reason, the American public, especially in the government, tend to avoid. And I, I'm not speaking for Chris; I'm speaking for, I'm speaking for myself. Um, And so, yes, what you're going to see is as organizations more and more are breached, um, you have you have agencies like the SEC saying, hey, you have to report the breach. You have the FDA saying, hey, you have to enforce policy. You have to follow our rules because if you don't, there are consequences. You will be held accountable. So um,
0: we're going to see some changes in that uh, in that space, Chris. Well, speaking of reporting the breach, there's some uh, interesting news. I got a uh, email at questions at hacker in the Fed from an interesting person. Uh, is actually my co-host. It was you, Hector, um, <laughs> uh, and you wanted to talk about uh, are paying ransoms illegal in the U.S.? Which led to some different uh, new rules being put out there about ransomware and paying ransomware uh, that included some reporting rules. So, why don't you get into how this came up uh, in your real life and the conversation uh, that they came from it?
1: Yeah, no, this is a great story and it's, it's, it's a great question because I sat here and I was just having a conversation with one of my boys, he's, he's big into security, he's more on the defensive side rather than offensive. And we were talking about, you know, one of the big recent ransomware uh, um, engagements we've seen in the news and we noticed that the victim paid immediately, right? Almost immediately. As soon as the breach happened, boom, they paid a ransom, okay? Without mentioning names, we're not here to admonish anybody. Um, and then my buddy was like, well, I would think it would be illegal. Like, what if, what if the ransomware group is, is tied to ISIS? It, doesn't that trigger something in uh, the anti-terrorism laws in the United States? And it sent me down a rabbit hole, ladies and gentlemen, my beautiful audience. It really put me down in a rabbit hole because I really needed to figure out, well, if that's the case, and, and a U.S. company pays a ransom to a known organization that has an affiliation with a terrorist organization. Is that illegal? And what are the consequences to the victim if they're paying that ransom? And it turns out they're, they're actually giving money to terrorism. So I I, I did find a couple of things, Chris, if you don't mind. Um, I I did notice a couple of things here. So depending on which state you're in, so North Carolina and Florida, and and Chris, you have more details you can go into. Uh, they do have rules. They're very specific rules. Um, some states like like North Carolina and Florida. Um, have made it illegal uh, for state and local government agencies to pay ransoms. Of course, I'm sure there's variables, right? I'm sure somebody somewhere in the state of Florida and the state of North Carolina have to kind of oversee that and make a denial or or reject the the assessment for a payment of ransom. Uh, But for the rest of the 50 states and the territories, there are a rule, um, there is a law by... OFAC that is the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control OFAC that's here in the United States and please audience if you um, In your home country if you have similar laws or you have rules and regulations in regards to paying ransoms uh, I would love to hear about it. Please send us please send us some questions I think there's some in France. I think there's some in Italy, but um, I didn't get go too deep into those Uh, so When it comes to the OFAC regulations, what they're saying is it it makes sense to check with OFAC first because there is – you are prohibited from paying a ransom to uh, known bad actors. It's a crime. Specifically – yeah, it is a crime, yes. Uh, Specifically with terrorism, right? So if ISIS ransomwares your your network and you're ready to pay ISIS, uh, you more than likely are breaking the law. Am I right on that?
0: Now there is some 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 you know we, we can get into some nuance here. So yeah, OFAC, checking OFAC lists is before that's one of the, like the common things and Naxo, That's one of the lists we check before we take on new clients. We run a conflict check, and, and OFAC is is obviously one of those. So, but if you're a ransomware group um, and you're paying them, like you're you're a victim of ransomware, you know you're paying a criminal organization um, at first. So that's going to be a little weird to begin with. The problem with uh, with you know. The you know cryptocurrency, you don't really know who you're paying. You know they're criminals, but they could be you know North Korea, which is definitely on the OFAC list. Um, and I've not seen any sort of convictions or anything, sort of even charges being brought up. But it, it, I'm sure it's to come in the future, um, where you know Treasury is going to charge people for you know you ended up paying this large ransomware, um, and you know, it ends up being an OFAC person that you could have done a little due diligence to figure out. Maybe, you know, there are companies out there that do crypto tracing. Naxos is one of those companies that can do some crypto tracing for people to figure out. Now, most of these guys probably don't, have, they're untraceable, uh, you know, until, you know, something's messed up. But, you know, that maybe that's part of your due diligence before you you, you pay a, a ransomware company. Um, one of the other surprising things is not only is it now illegal for uh, Florida and North Carolina to have uh, local and state agencies pay ransomware. You have to, in Florida, you have to report within 12 hours. Um, that's going to be tough. I mean, that's even worse than the SEC reporting that we just talked about a few minutes ago.
1: Yeah, at least with the SEC, you get four days to get, you know, to, to kind of sort things out. And even then, I, I could promise you there are CIOs and CISOs out there that will tell you uh, four days is not enough. Yeah. Um, but 12 hours in North Carolina and Florida, um and mind you, I'm not admonishing them. No. These states. No, no, no. I, I'm with this. Um, I do not agree with paying these ransoms. Unfortunately, I understand also that some organizations are, you know, they're caught with their pants down. Some of these organizations do not have resilience whatsoever. Their backups are gone, and they're pretty much going to go out of business if they don't get their data back. I understand that. But for the most part, there are some companies out there that don't, that probably do not need to pay the ransoms. You know, it's it's complicated and I'm not I'm no attorney, so I can't speak on the legality of this, but I like to see big shout out to Florida, big shout out to North Carolina for, for thinking about this and, and putting some some action behind it.
0: I would love to see the numbers and it's gonna take time for this, but are ransomware criminals now gonna not attack Florida and North Carolina? I mean these guys are running as a business. They want to get paid. They're doing this in order to make money. You send a ransom, you, you hack into a sheriff's department in Florida. Uh, you send them the ransom note. They come back and say, it's illegal for us to pay you. We can't pay you. We have to fix this. we you know, our network is gone. We're got to either rebuild it or fix it or whatever they're going to do. But the only option we I know we can't do is pay you. So waste your time. Um, you know, so uh, do you think the attackers now are going to just not go after them? Well, here's the thing with the attackers. Now, now, now I
1: get to become useful as part of our relationship here, as a former black hat, right? Um, okay, cool. If, and I'm putting my. By the way, I've never done ransomware, so please, guys, don't think that I'm uh, going into my experience with this. But I'll give you the perspective. Well, if 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 the agency's not going to pay us, then we'll try to reach out to China, and see if they, they want some information on the sheriff's internal network, right? Or I'll try to reach out to a bad actor that wants this information. I'm not going to get the million dollars. I might get 20 G's for it. But something is something. That's unfortunate, Chris. But you're right. In a way, long term, it might deter, might, uh, heavy emphasis, uh, these bad actors who are just really in it for the money. They're not in it for World War 3 They're not in it for Intel work, right? Um, they may say, you know what? Screw those two states. I'm going to focus on the other 48 and territories.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see like people like the young, naive hackers, noobs or whatever, kind of going after them to prove them a point. You know, F Florida. I'm not, you know, they have some political thing against them or something like that. And they're like, I'll show them. They're going to have to fix their network. But the, the the real ransomware guys who are in it for just the money and it's running out as a business, I think they're going to skip over. They're going to be like, well, I know we're not going to get paid. So why even waste our time going through it?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, the one thing I'll point out is that not not all ransomware groups are into hacktivism. A lot of them are agnostic. They don't care about politics. And we've seen that. But obviously, is it going to stop the other, you know, X amount of hackers that, you know, will do it just to prove a point? No. Is it going to stop hacktivists? No. Uh, But there are some good points from this, right? And a big shout out, again, to those two states. um, And that is that we probably need more states and more territories. Um, to participate in this mindset, especially for, you know, the state and local governments and these agencies. Um, Hey, you got hit. That sucks. Now let's, let's rebuild and let's think of ways to be preemptive, to mitigate this before it happens. Remember, one thing I tell people all the time, in fact, I'm doing a speech this week, right? One thing I tell folks all the time is you want to make it expensive. Time equals money. If an attacker gets into your local network and they can't do anything and they cannot monetize that breach, they've just wasted X amount of hours for nothing. They're going to have a, a salty taste in their mouth. They're going to be pissed the hell off. They might destroy some stuff, but you've limited the, your, their damage and you've you've hopefully made it seem like, hey, we're not a good target for you. Move on.
0: Yeah, let's see. We'll see how it would, turns out. Wanna, you know, but people have to remember that you know this money is being used for bad things. We talked about it last week. That these ransomware groups are are spending millions now on zero day exploits, uh, and it's just further. You know, paying these ransoms is just further. You know, allowing their organization to grow um, massively. So we'll see what happens. So the next one, Hector, uh, NSA and, uh, and CISA, um, red team and blue teams share top 10 security misconfigurations. Um, can you just remind the audience what red teams and blue teams are?
1: Sure, absolutely. Those are military um, terminology. Uh, a blue team is, is usually a reference to the defending team, the folks that are kind of watching over an asset uh, or a network in this case. Um, in the military, it will be a military base or physical assets, right? Right. But when it comes to cyber, it's really like the guys that are managing, defending, securing, responding to um, security incidents or anomalies and events uh, from the defensive perspective. And a red teamer, very similar to Tiger teams in like uh, Sweden and Europe and other places, uh, these are offensive groups, right? So if we were to look at it from the original, uh, uh, where it came from, the military, they would put together a team of specialists, people that were very good at breaking and entering and, um, you know, disabling cameras and, you know, lateral movement. And they would have these guys approach a military base and try to identify gaps that would allow them into the base. That is a breach. That is a major security incident. So red team and blue team operations are fantastic. Now, when it comes to cyber, a red team group is a group of folks that are simulating or emulating uh, attacks against their clients' assets. Very similar to the the, the approach I just mentioned a moment ago.
0: Excellent reports, guys. Check out in the description. Read these articles. They list, we'll kind of go through them, the top 10 security misconfigurations exploited by uh, attackers. But they also give you, uh, you know, top mitigation and remediation recommendations. So, Hector, any of these uh, misconfigurations stick out to you. And, you know, uh, default configuration of the software application, we talk about it all the time. Improper separation of user administrative privileges, um, insufficient internal network monitoring, lack of network segmentation, poor patch management, uh, bypass system access controls, weak or misconfigured MFA, insufficient access control list, poor credential hygiene, uh, unrestricted code execution. Man, it sounds like a uh, next 10 episodes of Hacker in the Fed.
1: <laughs> you know what? We should do a series based off this report. Uh, but yes, these are all areas of concerns that we talk about literally episode to episode, right? Um, You know, one story would would kind of mention how an attacker got into an internal network and they had full carte blanche access. That would be a a network segmentation problem. We talked about password stuffing and breaches, which goes back to poor hygiene, uh, poor credential hygiene, and of course, weak or misconfigured or missing MFA um, um, uh, technologies, right? The only one here that's interesting and and, it may, you know, it may start a whole completely new different conversation is the unrestricted code execution that's very broad i think that's the only one here that's vague okay that could mean a lot of things that could be a zero day that could be um, an application that's written wrong is developed improperly and allows for users just to execute code um on the platform right there's, there's a lot of ways to look at it but the rest of them we all know about we speak about and we try to educate our audience about because we want to be able to kind of minimize some of these things Uh, and make it more difficult for an attacker to leverage.
0: Yeah, my big problem with these is, you know, probably six, seven, eight of them, you know, uh, this list is going to look the same 2023, 2013, 2011, you know, this goes back 10, 15 years of the same stuff. Like, it's hard to believe that, you know, still a top 10 misconfiguration is you know improper separation of user administrative privileges you know if you guys are have an admin account in your network and you use that login as your daily account login that's nuts i i can't believe that's still an issue and we haven't combated that and and stop that you know admin accounts should only be used when changing the admin and then switch out of it um maybe it's inconvenient i don't know but that that account should be heavily guarded 20, 25 characters, uh, password, um, that you have to, you know, look up somewhere, you know, you don't, you know, it's in a password management system, uh, and it's, it's, it's guarded, um, you know, with a a physical token and and all that. I mean, you need to really, really secure that account. If it's your daily using account, you're doing it wrong. You're doing, you know, and we've been preaching this for years. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, when we started a
1: podcast, I think midway, Maybe four four months in, we read that report from the Depor- Department of Interior. You remember that report, really good one. Sure. Um, and it mentioned how, you know, regardless of the agency and state and circumstance, what what they were seeing after their audit is that you know anywhere between like eighteen and twenty three percent. I forgot there's some, some random numbers there, of networks they've audited had um, administrative accounts that were still active that belonged to employees that no longer work at the agency, right? Um, or that was the correlation in some way. At the very least, um, you had dormant admin accounts that should that, that do exist for no good reason.
0: And then, you know, poor patch management. I mean, my God, Hector, we've talked about upgrades and, and you know, putting things in there. And, and, and you know, it's, it's just surprising to me that these continue to be an issue. And do you see a solution where some of these, you know, rudimentary, you know, cybersecurity practices can be fixed? Is it a generational thing? I mean, can, it can you know if we wait, you know, until the the current workforce kind of that that was, you know, I, I'd say the workforce that's there now have pretty much been using computers since they came to work. We've kind of pushed on past people that w- computers were introduced. Um, you know, are we teaching cybersecurity to young enough age now um, that the next generation of workers are you know have this mindset, or is this just going to keep continuing? It's going to keep continuing because you and I have discussed the facts
1: that, especially here in this country, and and for the audience, please, I would love your perspective on what your countries are doing, but here in the United States, yes, you know, there's some activity from some organizations, some agencies like the NSA and CISA, they're doing what they can to provide free resources and education and YouTube videos to the general audience, right? There are also some agencies and some organizations that are, you know, they're providing this information to specific schools. You know, I know of a school myself that's that's you know starting with with cybersecurity very early on. But that's one out of millions, right? So to answer your question, no, we're not we're not doing what we need to do to help this next generation get to where they need to get to and understand these at the very least basic security concepts. And we're going to kind of repeat the same problem we have with passwords. The password problem is thirty plus years old. In fact, one of the first. How to hack magazine or articles that I read when I first got online in 95 was how to hack into a server over Telnet and use the password admin god or root god or root root, right? Default credentials. Um, Now, thankfully, we have organizations, even something we mentioned here today, that are pushing passwordless authentication and pass keys and FIDO and security keys. That's beautiful. But it took us how long to get to that point? the same is going to apply to what exactly you mentioned patch management asset management prioritization of vulnerabilities security updates you name it it's going to be there bro
0: do you think it comes down to accountability we're not holding people accountable i mean like someone someone's responsible for the 100 million dollars lost in the uh, mgm hack do you think there's going to be any accountability in that? I mean, maybe some people are going to be fired. Maybe a CISO is going to be fired. But the person whoever clicked on the link or had the weak password or whatever, um, and it, uh, go. let's go on from that. Is the person having the weak password? Is it their fault? Or is it the system administrator's fault for allowing weak passwords? Because there's plenty of tools out there that can search your system for weak passwords and say, hey, your password's not strong enough. It's not been updated. There's plenty of tools out there to search the dark web and say, hey, your password Password that you use is out in the dark web associated with your email account. It needs to be changed. There's a lot of tools to be used there. So, so whose fault is it? Is it the the end user? Is it the administrator for not applying the tools properly? Um, where something's got to fix it, and and I just don't know where. Hacker and the Fed is very happy to partner with DeleteMe. DeleteMe is a great company to work with. Their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used DeleteMe long before starting the podcast because of DeleteMe's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of DeleteMe convinced me to start using their services as well. We talk about personally identifiable information, PII being stolen on the show all the time. Data brokers are individuals and companies that specialize in collecting and organizing personal data. These data brokers are out there collecting your information 24 7 from public records such as court records, motor vehicle records, census data, birth certificates, marriage license, voter registration information, bankruptcy records, divorce records, and many more. Data brokers are vacuuming up social media accounts and information they can gather about you and even buying records like your purchase records, credit card records. Hector and I talk every week about a new breach with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are gathering those exposed records that even include your passwords that you use. Then cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credits and making purchases on your credit cards. It's possible to request data removal on your own and do it manually, but it takes way too much time. That's why we use Delete.me. Delete.me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete.me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers, and Delete.me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by privacy advisors. The service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you will receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. Then Delete Me scans and deletes all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple, to remove customer's information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Delete.me is also a great idea for our family members. Elderly people fall for scams more easily and scammers target them based on the data they collect online. So protecting our whole family is a good idea through our partnership with Delete.me hacker and the fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code F E D two zero. That's fed 20 go to join delete me.com slash fed and use the code FED20FED20 FED20, for 20% off. The service is great and helps support our show. Again, join deleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20FED20 FED20, for 20% off all consumer plans.
1: Well, first off, my friend, you heard me shushing a little bit because you got to be careful. When you throw around that word, accountability, you know, things are You going
0: to started dangerous. it. You okay. opened that can of worms, and <laughs> no, now no, it's no, in no, my no, brain.
1: <laughs> well, because it's true. We have a serious problem with accountability, but I really want to touch on your question, my friend. Uh, it is a mix of both, right? I'll give you an example. Let's say you listen to our podcast and you develop a policy. That policy is... Uh, you know, uh, a mitigation or prevention uh, or or whatever uh, against social engineering campaigns. So you hire a company or two, you buy a product or two, and now you're training each individual employee on how to deal with social engineering and what's the process, what's the policy. It comes in, you report to the security team, you get an email from the CEO, you validate, you verify, right? Okay, cool. But if those emails are still getting through because you, as an organization, did not make the investment to add in technical controls to prevent those emails from coming in, then you're leading you're leading directly back to one of the really good points that Verizon made a couple of years ago in their data breach and incident response report. I think 2020, 2021, I believe, where they said that. And mind you, Verizon is a tier one ISP in this country, in the United States. For, for the audience that doesn't know. Um, and because it is a tier one ISP, they get to see billions upon billions of plain text emails traveling through their network, right? Okay. What they're, what they, what, uh, Verizon saw is that regardless of technical controls, regardless of training, regardless of, you know, whatever variable you want to throw at it, anywhere between 2 to 5% of those emails are still being opened and they're still being interacted with by potential victims. Now training is going to take your employees to a point technical controls are going to help you mitigate to that point and even if an attacker just randomly gets in their sp- their their phishing email into an inbox just by chance the hope is the hope is that your user will be able to spot it now let's say we get into the might you know into this in the the minute um smallest of percentages right less than one percent okay but one of those scenarios where the email gets through the technical controls. The email gets past a very seasoned um, employee and they just really got caught up in a very sophisticated payload. Now, we have to hope that our endpoint technical controls is going to mitigate that final payload. Okay? That's the hope. So, yes, it's, it's it's this multi-stage. It's multi-layered. You can't just do training and call it a day. You have to do training. You have to implement controls. You have to put endpoint controls because it's not that easy. It's not black and white.
0: Yeah, great article, guys. Check it out in the description. You know, CISA's got this report, NSA, and they they do include you know their their top ten uh, mitigation you know recommendations. You know, removing default credentials. You know, modern audit user activity and patch systems. You know, it, it's all the same stuff as, as we do before, but it's a good reminder. So check out the articles. Hector zero days for hacking WhatsApp are now worth millions of dollars. You know. So we, we, this is a great article you sent over. So uh, thanks to improvements in security mechanisms and mitigation, hacking cell phones, uh, both running iOS and Android, have become an expensive endeavor. That's why hacking techniques for apps like WhatsApp are now worth millions of dollars. So they're saying that a zero-day that allows you into a target's WhatsApp uh, messages uh, can cost between $1.7 and $8 million. Wow, look at that. Maybe we're wasting our time doing a podcast. We should be developing zero-day exploits.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I mean, I think, you know, if we, if we go 50-50 on it, I think we, we, we do it right. One zero-day a year, I think that's, that's a great salary.
0: Yeah, no, that's not something I'm too much interested in because, uh, you know, a lot of these these zero-days are being bought up, you know, by the, like I said, the criminal activity, the ransomware guys, um, and using it to then further their surveillance you know and, and, and get more information and put it out there so but it's crazy to see like what the value of the, these zero days are going and how they're skyrocketing
1: they are right they're skyrocketing they keep going up the more secure mobile devices become the more expensive these exploits will be so imagine a scenario one or two years from now where a whatsapp zero day one click or zero click vulnerability or exploit is probably going to be worth as much as an NBA player's yearly salary. Isn't that insane?
0: Kids, get into cybersecurity, get into network research, get into all this stuff because it could be uh, a very valuable commodity. So it's already starting to get there. Next one's kind of a, sort of a, hey, guys, this is happening, so uh, look out for it. Uh, But uh, there was an impersonator for a meta meta recruiter um, was used to breach an aerospace firm. Uh, Did you read about this?
1: Yeah, I read about it. I found that interesting. I thought you would like it, to be honest.
0: Yeah, so North Korean group uh, Lazarus um, used uh, the attack uh, to go through Meta uh, to get a person in an aerospace firm in Spain to click on a link, um, download an executable uh, onto their device, and then uh, completely owned all the information off that network um, using a new type of payload called Lightless Can. Uh, which is a complex and possibly evolving tool uh, that exhibits a high-level sophistication uh, in its design and operation and represents a significant advancement in malicious capabilities compared to its predecessor, Blinding Can. Wow, there's a bunch of cans in there. A lot of cans, a lot of cans. <laughs> but yeah, Lightly's Can was a previously published, undocumented, and sophisticated remote-access Trojan, or RAT. Can you kind of explain what a, uh, a RAT is?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are products out there that, and some of you may be aware of these, um, they help you manage uh, computers, desktops, mobile devices remotely, right? Kind of like remote desktop, remote desktop support, etc. A lot of actors use like AnyDesk and similar products. But the idea here is that you're able to create a payload, that payload is executed on a device you want to manage, and over the internet, you can manage that device. So if you're traveling, and and they have legitimate uses, by the way, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but they have legitimate uses where, like, let's say you're traveling and you have a a workstation at home. You want to be able to access it. You can log in over this protocol, over VPN, and boom, you have control of your device um, while you're in the middle of Japan or something, right? Uh, But the bad actors are also using these capabilities, these protocols for kind of doing the same. Once they compromise your system, they'll run... A remote, uh, a remote administration uh, tool or remote access trojan, as, as stated in this article, um, or rats, and they'll be able to control your endpoint once they breach it, right? So that's a, a big problem.
0: So another interesting one here on this one, and I'd like to know your take on it, is that the, this group used uh, a mechanism called uh, execution guardrails to make sure that the payload would uh, could be decrypted only on the, the intended victim's machine. And so execution guardrails you know, are a set of proactive protocols and mechanisms implemented to safeguard the integrity uh, and confidentiality of the payload during the deployment and the execution, you know, preventing decryption on unintended machines uh, like those of security researchers. As an attacker, what's the benefit of this? Is it just so they can't, the, your tool lasts longer? Um, or why are they using this? Why are they putting this extra effort in for these execution guardrails?
1: Yeah, no, that is a great question. You can quote me on that. I will. Um, (laughs) uh, But no, it is a great question because it all depends on the attacker. Let's look at the CC Cleaner um, supply uh, supply chain attack that we've discussed many times because it's one of my favorites, right? CC Cleaner was used by millions of computers around the world, right? There's hundreds of thousands of downloads per day back when that breach happened. So it would have probably been a ton of noise for the attacker, a ton of noise. And it would have cost them more time, and remember, time equals money for these bad actors, it would have cost them more time to navigate through each individual breach system or compromised system and and try to identify those that are interesting. So, in the case of CC Cleaner, um, those guys set up an execution guardrail or an infection guardrail so that they could infect specific corporations that they were interested in targeting. Okay, now, with that being said, when you apply it to a general attacker that's not really dealing with a lot of noise, they're very highly targeted. Um, they will set guard, um, guardrails against, um, you know, virtual machines, right? That's one. They would also see if there's a specific EDR product warning that they know, you know, is, is going to interrupt your operations. They'll see if it's, you know, they, they'll try to determine whether it's a workstation versus like somebody's laptop, right? Um, okay. So there's definitely a lot of variables that they, they will um, add to their guardrail for the sole purpose of minimizing detection. So it goes back to your question, really. Yeah, kind of answered it for yourself.
0: Yeah, so that makes sense. Appreciate the explanation. Hector, the next story kind of made me, uh, it made me feel sad. I got to be honest. It just, you know, it was, uh, it, uh, it, you, you hear, you know, like the, the MGMs and the Caesars and how much money it's going to cost them um, to fix their ransomware. But a 158-year-old company in, in England, uh, a logistics company, gone, done. No more because they got hit by a ransomware attack.
1: It's a shame. It's a real shame, and there's real world consequences to some of these actions. Of course, uh, some of these folks that are participating lack empathy, so it doesn't really matter to them. But yes, one hundred and fifty year old company uh, going down because their systems weren't prepared for this. Um, and then of course, you know having to you know fire or let go seven hundred and thirty jobs, that's a minimum of seven hundred and thirty families not including all the individuals, right? There's a, there's a big impact here. Um, and if, you know, the one thing I'll point out for you guys is, like, look, this has a major impact on local economies. The, this company that went down over there in, in, in England, um, it seems they're from North Hampshire, Hamptonshire, sorry. That's going to have a local impact on their economy. That's going to be a big drain. And those are there's a lot of resources that kind of went down, went away because of this campaign. Um, yeah, I feel I feel the same as you, Chris. It is a shame. It's definitely sad.
0: So yeah, the Knights of Old started off as a single horse and cart in 1865, and now is one of the UK's largest privately owned logistics companies. And now gone because their their network security was taken over by some shitheads uh, and hit with ransomware. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're a big company and, you know, I'm not preaching for, you know, you know, but, but it just, it just seems strange that they lasted through a lot of, they lasted through world wars, um, long time. And, and now, you know, ransomware is the one that took them down. Uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the, the, you know, the, 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 the bad side, the downside of, uh, of some of this stuff and the rural victims and thinking about, like you said, all the 730 families that are all affected by this, but, uh, All right. Another news. uh, The FDA cyber mandates for medical devices goes into effect. So the FDA now has new regulations for cybersecurity for pacemakers and that sort of thing put it in. New regulations went into effect this week to aim at more difficult to hack into medical devices by requiring vendors to beef up security features of things like pacemakers and insulin pumps before they make into the market. So the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States has mandated vendors of medical devices. They do three things. Create a process to find and mitigate vulnerabilities, create a software bill of materials, and have a plan in place to address vulnerabilities for products after they've been sold. Good things to have, Hector? Absolutely. It is
1: common sense. And as someone I, okay, as someone who has done a pen test for a physical um, healthcare device, I can't give you any more details than that, I could tell you from a fact that Even prior to this mandate, um, the FDA was very stringent, very hard, very strict on um, on giving a a green light and a pass to the manufacturer that I did the engagement for. And that's great, right? It's expensive if you want to be an entrepreneur and build a new device, a new pacemaker, a next generation pacemaker. You know, you have to go through a, a lot of hoops before you get the confirmation, you get the green light to move forward and go to market. That's a wonderful thing, though, because I remember Chris you may remember 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 this as well. During the Bush era, we have Dick Cheney in office with him, and he had the pacemaker. Remember that was a big topic of national security. Well, what if someone creates like a flipper a flipper zero style device, and they like you know they he goes to a meeting and they just you know press a button from across the room or something, right? Uh, it, it's it's been a topic of interest for a very long time. It's not new. So I'm very glad that the FDA is putting even more mandates into effect um, to make sure that these devices, which are life-saving, um, you know, have or, or follow the proper the proper security guidelines. 100%. I'm with it.
0: Yeah, you know me. I'm not a big into regulation, but but this seems like the right move. Right approach because, you know, it says that the new rules will empower the FDA to refuse to accept devices that don't meet the cybersecurity guidelines. Um, and But for the, the device makers, it could be a huge hit because they're getting late to the market and it could cost them millions of dollars a month of, of revenue. So, you know, they need to get cybersecurity ahead of it. So, Um, You know, the new guidelines do apply to what quote unquote cyber devices, which is uh, broadly includes products that are connected to the Internet, software products or software in devices and devices with technical characteristics that could be vulnerable to cyber threats. So it seems like this new regulation is very broad and gives the FDA a lot more power. Um, but you know the, hopefully that means that the devices are much more safe uh, and uh, makes people think about before they use some sort of open source software in these devices and and not understanding really what they're using it for uh, and put it in some of the 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 attacks that could be done against it.
1: Yeah, and I would kind of point out, so you know, from my experience in doing that engagement that I mentioned, the one thing i'll I'll say to the audience here for any of you that are entrepreneurs, inventors, you're about to build, a product that you want to bring to the FDA or within your market in your home country, um, there's a couple of things that you need to really address. The first thing you want to address is, um, you know, are you following the guidelines that they've provided you, right? So that's that's very obvious. But there's a couple of nuances, right? There are some developers that have no idea how to put together a proper S SBOM S stands for software bill of materials. It's basically a list of software libraries, dependencies, requirements, prerequis- prerequisites. Um, that are associated to your software products, um, and then of course now we started to see governments talk about hardware bill of materials. In fact, Chris, I remember in one of your stories you talked about uh, when we had the the, the story on uh, remember the network equipment that was that had like weird uh, chips attached to them. You remember the whole conversation? Sure. And I sure. remember you telling me that when the FBI brings in um, hardware, you guys take it apart. You have researchers. So look at the hardware to see if there's no back doors and stuff in it, right?
0: Yeah, look looking for added chips that aren't on the original schematics and all that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. And in a way, you guys are basically building. Um, and if in, in, in regards to the, uh, the schematics, you probably were requiring like a hardware bill of materials. So we're starting to see a lot of organizations outside of government having that conversation. So again, to any of you would-be inventors out there or you're developing a product for uh, the healthcare industry, make sure that you understand your S-bomb, and if you're building a hardware product like a robot, you wanna make sure you have an H-bomb um, associated to your to your um, your application.
0: So Hector, on May 3rd, 2023, the city of Dallas was hit with a ransomware attack that affected their email system, the website and the phone system. Also, they lost access to critical data, including employee records and financial information. Uh, this all happened because a threat actor sent a phishing email to a city employee that clicked on the malicious link. My God, how many times do we have to say this uh, over and over and over again? Uh, The city estimates that it lost uh, about over a million dollars, which includes the cost of restoring the data and lost productivity and revenue and cost of hiring outside experts. But something good did come from this. Tell the audience what came good from this attack.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, whether you are in the United States or not, take a look at this report. The city of Dallas really blew my mind. They've created... Um, a fantastic showing, right? They put together an amazing report from beginning to end, detailing the entire process completely open in their, um, you know, with, with regard to getting the information out there to their residents and to any government agencies reading this report. It is a public report. You can download, it, you can't read it. It's right on their, like, main website. And what's fantastic about this report is they tell you what happens. They tell you how it happened. They tell you the cost, and the gaps that they've identified while dealing with the incident and responding to it. They also came back with mitigations. They came back with remediations and they detailed their remediations very clearly in a way that makes sense. We're talking about plain English. The report does not lose you in jargon. They're talking about developing a comprehensive cybersecurity plan. They're talking about policies, improving their policies, implementing security awareness and training. They're talking about teaching their employees how to deal with these things. And of course, that first point that I mentioned also deals with technical controls. And then, oh, sorry, no, the following one, following point, strengthening security controls is one of their big points. I just want to quote this for you guys here, okay? The city has strengthened security controls. This includes implementing stronger passwords, requiring multi-factor authentication, and updating security software. The report is splendid. It is a great read. I recommend you guys read it.
0: Yeah, it really is. It, thanks for sending that over. I, I enjoyed it. Um, they go into the hacking group and uh, everything and how to fix it, like like Hector said. Great report. Um, really easy to read. Uh, and so check it out. We'll put it in the description. Hector, like always, we love to get questions from our listeners. So if you guys have a question, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Even if you're a co-host on the podcast, you can send your questions into questions at hackerinthefed.com. I got one from Hector this week. That was great. Our first one is um, some Stefan. Love your show and listen to it every week. Question, what FIDO2 security key do you recommend? So I will say that we stay kind of agnostic to products and different things. uh, But Hector, we can tell the audience the the keys that we use.
1: Yeah, I'm with it, 100%. Yeah, so I I personally use the YubiKey, the NFC version. You know, it's uh, it's fantastic. It works. It's probably one of the more expensive keys, um, but they're consistent. Um, you know, they're very open with, um, you know, documentation, protocol support. So it was a worthwhile investment for me. But I'll tell you, um, I do have a secondary set of keys from a different manufacturer, which I won't disclose, and very similar in nature. Now, here's the good thing, guys. There's a bunch of these coming out. There's a bunch of companies coming out. And I would recommend you do your research before you purchase their keys. Okay, Chris, your turn.
0: Well, what, what do you always recommend with YubiKeys? Or not just UB keys, but all Fido 2 keys. Yeah, well, I would recommend that you... Okay, so this this is pretty straightforward, right? Just for new listeners that haven't heard this before. Yeah,
1: so for new listeners here, you know, the thing that I'll tell you is you're, not, you're just not going to buy one key. You have to get a minimum of two keys. You have your primary and your backup. Your primary, you can have your keychain, you can have it in a lanyard, you can walk around with it, whatever. Um, you don't want to lose it, obviously, and you want to you want to have your own physical security protocols and personal security uh, policies when you deal with your key. But the point is, in the event you lose it, that's the worst case scenario. You have a secondary backup at a minimum, okay? Um, otherwise, you're going to be locked out of your accounts, and that's not fun. Now you have to contact
0: technical support. And do you recommend having the exact same uh, make and model or, or brand, you know, for that secondary key?
1: Yeah, for a secondary key, key, absolutely. I have the same exact brand, same exact model. And for like secondary sets, right? These are the backups of the backups. Um, I like to go with a different manufacturer simply because if there's a vulnerability that's identified in in the YubiKey that I purchased um, and I need to remove those keys and go back to my, my secondary backup, I have that. Otherwise, if there's a security vulnerability that's found in that current YubiKey that I own, now I have to place an order with a new manufacturer, do my research, obviously, Purchase it. Wait one or two weeks. That gives. That's two weeks that I'm
0: open to attack. Excellent point. So yeah, no, I use the same YubiKey key as you, Hector. Be off of your recommendation. Um, so that, that's sort of uh, my approach too. And, and and all good points on these things. And for those that don't quite you know what a, a FIDO key is, the FIDO two key security key. Um, you know we've talked about it for weeks. It's sort of what's we're replacing usernames and passwords. Uh, it's an encryption device that you set up uh, with your account logins. It's a physical uh, USB stick or USB C or, or, you know, that that's plugs into a computer and it kind of, you don't have to log in. Once you set it up, it takes a long, a little while to set it up. I mean, it is time consuming on that front end, but once you set it up, it authenticates yourself to different websites um, that allows you to, you know, not have to use those username and passwords that are, are so vulnerable to attack that we talk about every week.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I want to clear up some confusion, right? Because you have, you have like the FIDO2 physical key and then you have pass keys. And passkeys are leveraging things like your mobile device um, and then it's you is also leveraging the security controls or mechanisms on that mobile device so biometrics fingerprints um, a hard-coded pin which I do not recommend folks using a pin um, you have a better chance using your fingerprint and/ or um, your biometrics um, or you know facial features sorry the facial security scan. Uh, that's better than putting in your username and password everywhere you go, okay? Uh, Definitely helps you with authentication. Definitely uh, helps eliminate uh, one, you know, successful element of social
0: engineering campaigns these days. So Timothy from Scotland writes, Hey, Chris and Hector, I've loved the podcast since day one and I value your input and enthusiasm over the years your prior messages have helped me greatly. And with some self-learning, I have been given a lot more opportunities in my entry-level position as a software developer to take a more active role in securing the projects I am working on. That's I'd, right.
1: That's what i love I'd to I'd like hear. to tell
0: all the other listeners to keep up their hard work and don't be discouraged at all. Perseverance is key. I also really enjoy your episode of the Equifax breach and the logger segment of the story. I th- really think it worked well. We're getting a lot of uh, good feedback on that. great breaking down the Equifax breach, so I think we should do another one of that coming up soon, Hector. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, you keep mentioning the merch. I'd love to I'd love for there to be a T-shirt for the Hector's number one quote. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, so I, I agree with that, Timothy. Um, it would raise so many questions and spark many conversations, I'm sure. Further, I saw an article on the BBC and the Register, uh, and I would love to get both your thoughts on that. The ICRC, uh, and that stands for the International Committee of Red Cross, has proposed. Uh, I like both of you feeling very strongly about these, and would and would attack healthcare infrastructure. And I hear that some hacking groups have started. Uh, they would ignore these. What are your thoughts on this? So, Hector. The International Committee of Red Cross has put out for the first time published rules for engagements of civil hackers involved in conflicts. Um, And they sort of warn against uh, a number of people are joining these patriotic cyber gangs um, since the Ukrainian invasion. And they want the ICRC wants people to, you know, have a little bit of oversight on the rules of war. Uh, Did you read about these? I did. And boy, let me tell you, it sparked some shit. It sparked some shit in you personally because you, at one point in your life, were a hacktivist, or it sparked some shit on the internet, um, or a little mixture of both.
1: Not necessarily with me. Like I agree, I I would not attack a hospital. I would not attack like a children's hospital or a hospital in general. Even though I, I came close in some cases to attacking infrastructure, I didn't. Right? At least I had the foresight to to stop myself so i I would agree that there should be some rules of of warfare but here's the thing right we're not talking about soldiers that are within the hierarchy there's no structure there's no leader in some cases a lot of these folks are independents they don't follow commands there's no consequences if they violate an order and the honest and and the honest truth here is that what what uh, the ir the international committee of the red cross did was They kind of put themselves in the sight of bad actors. The arguments came from, obviously, InfoSec Twitter and InfoSec InfoSec Mastodon and so on. And folks were pretty much divided. Hey, this sounds good. It sounds noble. And others were like, this is ridiculous. Who are these people to define those rules that are going to be followed by
0: people that follow no rules anyway? Yeah, we've talked about it before. You know, one thing people don't think about is so I'll just be very generic. Country A is fighting country B. You feel very strongly about country A and you want to help what they're doing. You then go in and hack into some communication channel on country B and shut it down. Well, you have no idea if, you know, country A had a listening device and that's where they were getting their best information was just listening to the communications uh, for country B there. And that's how, you know, they really were getting ahead uh, on this war because of it. Well, you just cut that off. I mean, you you don't know really what's happening. You don't know what the master plan is. You know, it can be dangerous. You could be hurting the efforts when you're you're thinking about helping them. Um, you know, take out breaking international law and, and all that sort of thing and, and putting yourself at risk. Yeah, I, I, I think this is kind of strange for the ICR. I understand the reasonableness for putting something out because it is sort of a problem. But, but like you said, they kind of put themselves in the uh, the crosshairs of a lot of uh, hackers on this one.
1: Yeah, and, and they probably were not the organization for this, right? It, it maybe should have been something that came from the United Nations in some sort of resolution. The same way that there are rules in war defined by, you know, uh, things like the Geneva Convention and so on, where it's clearly stated that you, if you are a, 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 a responsible member and you're following the rules of engagement, you're not going to use things like... Uh, like napalm, for example, in warfare, right? Um, you know, they, I don't think this organization was the one to kind of, you know, to kind of go out there. And I think, in fact, they were breached and maybe even had to face the well, they faced that their website, they face as a result of this, right? Uh, so far, the response from these hacktivist organizations is "f you," right? We're not following. So,
0: back in your day, in your days of hacktivism, would you have followed these rules? Me personally, yes
1: specific to healthcare because I I would not be able to live with myself if I did a hack of something and someone died as a result. I would would be completely devastated for the rest of my life. I would not be able to live. Um, But, unfortunately, there are other people out there that lack empathy, so I'm sure some of my cohorts would have ignored it.
0: Yeah, I I think it's strange to put the – this is the group that put them out. I agree with that. But, you know, on the flip side, I don't have a solution to say, uh, you know, that these are are bad sort of general points to be out there. Um, You know, so it's tough. Uh, We'll see what happens with it. But yeah, they definitely put themselves in the crosshairs on that got another thing for, on questions at Hacker and the Fed. This is really just a thank you to us, and we feel like sharing it. Um, didn't want our their name put out there. So it's just from a grateful fan. Um, hello, Chris and Hector. Please do not use my real name or identify information. In a recent interview, I mentioned that I listened to you, and I believe you're the secret sauce to get me the next interview. Well, that's a big shout out to Hacker and the Fed. I'm a sales and customer service-focused person. I've worked mainly in roles that are retail or mostly... Sh- charged in uh, calling different customers in special skill sets. Uh, I found myself recently unemployed and having been listening to you from the beginning. This is a great point in my career to pivot to a new industry listening to spy stories has been my hobby a long time Uh, i've been bored with hollywood spies for a long time i now realize while spies have great training they are still people and they exploit opportunities that are not everyone sees Uh, i've got a very basic understanding of anything computer-based but i've been able to put together a few things from listening to your podcast and my friends and family members who actually work in the field of delivery of services by computers again I'm a novice. In a recent interview, I messed up and I brought it back by telling them, while I don't know the product in full, I am aware that getting their customers the last mile of the way to the resolution. Uh, They can't do it alone. And most likely, they need this product and service because they had lax security or poor coding. Um, how did i know this oh i listened to a podcast called hacker in the fed where these issues are discussed and this is a in discussed weekly and i've never missed a week it's not fbi cia or law enforcement role but it's uh, help companies to get Them from being exploited. Uh, Thanks again. And do you ship merchandise to Canada? Yes, we do. We do international shipping. But thank you, grateful fan. Uh, I'm glad you could use us to help you get another interview and move your career, and that you're pivoting into cybersecurity. Um, I think it's great to to, to, that you we were able to help you in some small way.
1: Okay, so big shout out to you. A big, you know, very happy that you're pivoting. That's a big move. Right now, the uh, security industry is in a bull market. Right, it's it's doing very well. It's the right market, the right industry to get involved in. Now, with that being said, I want you, the next time you have your interview, okay, it's okay, by the way, to say that I'm not aware of the product or how it's used. I'm, I want to learn. You want to put that emphasis. I'm open to learn. I'm eager to learn. And I want to understand how your product works and you know how we can improve it moving forward. And then I also want you to put an emphasis on the fact that you know, you're you pivoting into cybersecurity specifically. And you want to be able to help the organization with their solutions, um, improving it in whatever way you can, right? These are very good points that you could address and you could push out there that's going to gain the interest of the people that are looking to hire you. Because security is such a big topic that if they're not involved yet, they will be eventually. And they're probably going to look for someone like you that's interested and wants to learn and wants to improve their product anyway. So I think you have a solid chance.
0: Yeah, I do recommend though. Research a company, research their product before you go for an interview. Uh, preparing for those interviews is really important. To going in and just, you know, taking a shot at it and not knowing what the company does, not the best move, you know, but that's what people want to see. People live in this small little bubble. And if you know about the bubble when you're there, it shows interest. Um, so yeah, you messed up on that one, but but I recommend that others, you know, going into an interview you don't have to know the CEO and every other person in the company and all that, but know the product and and what they're delivering is sort of the the message of the company. So, If you have questions, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector and I love them. A lot of questions this week about merchandise. Um, For Hacker and the merchandise, go to hackerinthefed.com to get all your hoodies and t-shirts and custom orders. We do international shipping. So anywhere you go, just go on the website, send a message of where you're at, and we'll get back to you on how much it would be to ship that uh, that item. Give us the the type of item you want and exactly where it's going and we can give you a, a pricing on the shipping. And announcement, Hector, that I put at the beginning, we are now going to have regular sweatshirts. People said some they can't wear a hoodie to work and they, they but they can't wear regular sweatshirts so we're going to make that offering. And we're also going to add the line, that's a great question, to any merchandise that we already sell. So if you want to get your that's a great question, Hacker in the Fed hoodie, sweatshirt, or t-shirt, they're going to be available when this podcast comes out. Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. So, um, again, HackerInTheFed.com to get those HackerInTheFed merchandise. And that's, the great, that's a great question, merchandise. Again, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Cybersecurity Awareness Month contest is still open. Um, write a new opening for the show. Post it on LinkedIn. Tag Hector. Tag myself. Tag Hacker and the Fed. And tag Naxo um, for it to be eligible for any of the free the merchandise. You, if we we like your opening, we will uh, contact you and you can pick out any merchandise off the the website. Um, one item and we'll send it to you uh, free of charge. Um, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, I enjoyed doing the show with you this week. I look forward to next week.
1: Absolutely, my friend, looking forward to it as well. Cheers. Cheers.